Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today, we're talking with Tom Dale of Ember.js about building modern web applications. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'd like to figure out first, before we get into any of the really deeply technical stuff, if you can explain to me what the difference between a website and a web application is. See, now that's a really hard question to answer, and I don't think that there's any hard or fast rule. If anything, I think that the line between native apps and the web is starting to blur, right? If you think about some of the most popular native applications for Mac, for iOS, for Android, those all heavily use web technologies to present content to users. And so if you can't even really anymore draw a distinction between native applications and the web, then trying to make a distinction between websites and web applications is an even finer-grained distinction to try to make. So, I mean, I think the way that historically people think about the differences between websites and web apps is that websites were purely content, like articles that you would download and, and view. Maybe you'd look at photos. But really, they didn't have much interactivity at all to them. And then web applications were things like, let's say, Google Maps, Google Docs, um, the Apple iCloud apps, where they were very interactive, where you had access to your own data, you could edit it in the cloud, right? That, that was the distinction. But the trend that I've noticed, especially over the last three or four years, is that so much interactivity is getting added to content sites that trying to draw a distinction is not super helpful. And and even, again, in native applications, if you look at any modern native app, so much of that code and so much of the UI actually is under the hood HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. You know, I, I often find that people are confused when I use the term web application. In fact, even sometimes in technology with some non-technical people who maybe have been doing web work for a while, they're in, you know, some like CMO position or something. And so, you know, every time that I use the word web application, you know, there's a little bit of confusion about, are we talking about an iOS app? And, you know, maybe part of that is simply due to, like you said, the fact that the lines are starting to blur uh, a lot as of late. But we've also heard this term lately of uh, like a single page web application, which seems to confuse the conversation even further. What, what do we mean by a single page web application? Sure. So I actually really dislike the term single page application because I think just if you heard that term and you didn't hear any context, you would think that it was something that didn't have multiple pages. And that's not actually what it means at all. I think a better term for this maybe is to say that the routing happens client-side. So let me take a step back and kind of describe how this worked before. Back in the day, browsers were simply document viewers, right? Like There was a time where browsers didn't even have something like JavaScript. All they could do was download HTML and display it to the user. But you want to have interactive content on the web, so how do you add interactivity to what's essentially a document viewer? And the incredibly clever hack that people came up with 
is that they moved all of the logic and all of the processing to the server. So you could click a link or you could fill out a form to interact and that data or that action went all the way, you know, thousands of miles to the data center. The web application was running on the server in the data center. It would have all the data, it would have all the behavior and all the logic, it would apply that, it would render a new version of the page that you were looking at a second ago and it would send it back. So the browser is, you know, at the time, a very dumb terminal. It's, uh, the, t- terminal the terminology sometimes people use is, uh, you know, a thin client. And all of the CPU and database is in the server that lives in the data center. In that case, the server does the routing. And when I say routing, what I mean is the server is translating, okay, you're visiting a URL like slash people slash one, two, three, right? And that's going to show you information about that person. The server is the thing deciding that that URL maps to a certain HTML representation. And for me, a single-page application, all that means is that the responsibility for turning a URL into content that the user can view, that all lives now in the browser. And that might sound like a somewhat trivial distinction. It's like, you know, why does it really matter who is deciding how URLs map into user interfaces? But the reason I think it's critical is, one... It means that you can use these applications even if you're offline. So if you're in an airport or you're in your car and you're going through a tunnel, if all of the information about how to convert a URL into the UI that the user is supposed to see is on the user's device, then it works offline even if they don't have an internet connection. And even if they do have an internet connection, it's much faster because now it can render whatever UI it wants to show you without having to make this oftentimes long round trip, especially, if, again, if you're on like a 3G network, it's very high latency. You know, why would, should your application have to talk to a server thousands of miles away just to make a decision about what UI to show? Right. I actually, um, I was on a podcast recently talking about this exact issue, talking about client-side applications. Um, and when we got into this, the host was describing a story that he told his wife, you know, trying to explain like exactly how this worked before. And explain that, you know, you're clicking a button and you're sending this request, you know, maybe you're in the Midwest and you've got this request going all the way to a server in Virginia just to be able to tell you what the end result of that button click was. And, you know, she, she of course, responds like, that's ludicrous. Why would you do that? But, I mean, that was just the state of technology at the time. I think Um, you're absolutely right. It's totally ludicrous. And the only reason that people think it's good today is because it's the only option that we've ever had. But you can imagine, imagine using like the email client on your mobile phone, like on your smartphone. Imagine if every time you tap any kind of button before anything happened, it had to go talk to a server and it just didn't work if you didn't have an internet connection for that moment, like you're in an elevator or something. No one would stand for that. That would feel so frustrating compared to what we have now. But on the web, people are just used to it or socialized into that being acceptable. But now that we have the technology, we can actually start building applications that are as responsive and as fluid to use as their native counterparts. And I, I guarantee you, once people start getting used to that, if your competitors start implementing that and you don't, I guarantee that you, in a few years, your app is going to feel really busted and really slow. So what's the difference with how things are, are being done right now compared to how they were before where you click the button oh, sure, and there's yeah. the round trip? Yeah, so before, with the round trip, all the logic and all the behavior lived on the server. So literally every little interaction required conferring with the server. And then 
uh, we had this new technology called Ajax. And Ajax let you sprinkle a little bit of interactivity onto the page. So Google Maps was like the first example that really took heavy use of this, where instead of having, remember MapQuest, where you like click to go right, and then you just wait for the page to reload. It's like, ah, it didn't go far enough, click again. Ah, it didn't go far enough, click again. And it was really slow, right? But with Google Maps, because it used Ajax, you could click and drag. And now a lot of this responsivity and this behavior now lives in your browser instead of on the server. And so a single-page app, what people call single-page apps, is taking that notion even further, where now it's not just all of the interactivity, all the logic for that lives in the browser. Now the whole app runs and lives in your browser. So every time you click, all of the decision-making power lives inside your browser in a JavaScript code running inside of your browser. You can actually build web applications that work completely offline without a server. So the browser is doing a lot more of the work nowadays than it used to. Right. You can actually think of these applications that are running as architecturally no different than a native app that you open. In a lot of ways, the browser is becoming just as capable as an operating system. And so like any operating system, it has the ability to run applications and to expose capabilities to them, things like file system, things like running long-running processes in the background, things like having access to the camera or the microphone, right? Those are the responsibilities of an operating system historically, but now browsers have that same ability. You know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, MapQuest because I, of course, remember the Google Map side of the story. I just, you know, remember the improvements, the good things, but it wasn't until you said that that I actually remembered the pain of clicking around. It was so bad, yeah. It was so bad. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> but if you recall, when MapQuest came out, it was awesome, right? Because like that was the state of the art. Right, at the, the, at the second, time. <laughs> yeah, it's like like one day, MapQuest is like so awesome. Everyone's like, oh, it's so sweet. And then Google Maps came out, and literally the next day, everyone's like, oh, my God, MapQuest sucks, right? <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and, and I really think that a similar phenomenon is going to start happening. As more and more companies uh, roll out products that do all of their routing on the client side, all of the, their competitors that don't do that are, are going to feel as busted as MapQuest feels compared to Google Maps now. So what sort of changes in the way the web works, the way browsers work, have allowed for us to be able to do what we're doing now? Well, I would say there's two answers to that question. So there are specific things that have happened, right? So for example, JavaScript runtimes have gotten a lot faster. So JavaScript that code that used to be dog slow 10 years ago is now like blazing fast today. There are features that have been added to the web platform. So, for example, I mentioned before things like the ability to access uh, the microphone and the ability to access the file system. So those things have all happened, and those are important. But I would say that there's kind of like a meta point higher to make about why the web is advancing faster than it used to. And, And that is, it's not just that capabilities have been added to the web platform. It's that the rate at which those capabilities are being added is increasing. So you get this kind of explosion of productivity and this explosion of capabilities being added to the platform. And I think a lot of people, especially those who were around the industry in the early 2000s, which was kind of like the dark ages of the web, right? It was like Microsoft dominated with Internet Explorer and then Mozilla wasn't really doing anything and and that was it. Netscape seemed like it was dead. And a lot of people who lived through that really internalized the pace of the web platform as being very glacial. So their immediate reaction now when they hear about a new feature coming to the web 
is, oh, yeah, that's great. When do I get to use it in like five years? Right. I mean, it's funny because I really wasn't coming up at that time. I mean, I was a user of the web at the time, but I really didn't end up doing anything serious with web development until five years ago. And that culture, I think, has infected me as well, where I get to the point where I hear the exact same thing. I'm like, okay, yeah, so when when the W3C gets to it and then we finally end up accepting it and people start actually implementing it, then maybe one day I'll see it. And yet I didn't even experience the same sort of pain that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I, I didn't even graduate high school until 2004. So I, I was even on the very edge of it. You know, I skipped all of like IE6. So I consider myself very fortunate. But the thing that people don't consider when they're thinking about the pace of change is that before upgrades to browsers were pegged with the operating system or they were controlled in a very fine way by like the IT department at a company, right? So people had a pretty good sense of like, I'm using IE6, okay, and now I'm going to upgrade to IE7. And then a few years later, okay, now I'm going to upgrade to IE8. It's a thing that you thought about. But the, the newest phenomenon that's just totally changing the way that people should think about how the web progresses is something uh, that people in the industry call evergreen browsers. And what the term evergreen browser means is a browser that upgrades itself without prompting. So I would bet many of the people listening to this podcast right now probably use Chrome as their web browser. And I bet if you're on Chrome, you probably have no idea what version you're using, more than likely. And the reason for that is you don't ever think about it. There's no multiple versions of Chrome, and it's like, oh boy, I got to upgrade to the latest version of Chrome. It's just every six weeks when you open Chrome, if it detects that there's a new version, it just downloads it and installs it automatically without even prompting you. And so that's what we call an evergreen browser. And what's really exciting is that all of the major browsers now, starting with IE 10, are evergreen. So we are very quickly entering a world where you don't have to think about what version of the browser your users are working or using. You just have to think, is this a browser that I support? Do I support IE? Okay, well, then I can assume that my user's on the latest version. Do I support Safari? Then I can assume that my user's on the latest version. And that unlocks so much because it means that the second that a feature is implemented in a browser, it's available for you to use as a web developer. Okay, that makes sense. So you, you described the blurring of the lines between native apps and web apps, and now you're talking about this interesting trend where the browsers are updating themselves. Is there anything else interesting that you see that's on the horizon for the web? Well, the most exciting thing to me is, uh, are you guys familiar with something called the Extensible Web Manifesto? I'm not. I'm not actually, no. Okay, so the Extensible Web Manifesto, and let me preface this by saying that I hate manifestos and everyone that signs them. However, I did help write and then sign a manifesto, so I have, there's a lot of self-loathing involved here. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, man, you really hate yourself. <laughs> uh, but like, like everyone, I think, I was like, oh, well, it seems important, so I should just put my distaste for manifestos uh, away. So the Extensible Web Manifesto, you can read it. Uh, it's extensiblewebmanifesto.org. And this is uh, just a document that describes what myself and other contemporaries believe are the important focus for standards bodies. Let me make that specific because I know it's very vague. Historically, the way that standards bodies have operated is they've said something like, there's this big problem for web developers. For example, uh, web developers want the ability to center divs using CSS, and that's quite challenging. 
So what they would do is they would form these committees full of people from the different browser vendors, and they would try to solve the problem in a very top-down way. So like, okay, how can we make it really easy for web developers to center this div on the page using CSS? And so they come up with some cool stuff like, like Flexbox. So Flexbox is a new CSS standard, and it makes it really easy to position things a lot more dynamically on the page. And that's great. The problem with this approach, though, is that it takes a very, very, very long time. Because by definition, when you're trying to build a big feature that solves a problem for everyone in a really robust, easy-to-use way, you're going to have a lot of surface area, right? It's going to be a pretty complex topic. It's going to be a pretty complex challenge to take on. And now you have to design it and reach consensus across tens, if not hundreds of people across all of these, about across browsers, vendors, standards, bodies, practitioners, and so on. And oftentimes, if you make an, a mistake, if you make an error in, in the feature, you don't even catch it until it's already shipped and it's been standardized and it's too late. So a good example of this is a feature called AppCache, which was supposed to give web applications the ability to run offline, but it had so many design flaws that weren't caught until it was standardized that no one in practice even uses it because it was so bad, and, and we lost years on that. So the extensible web manifesto says, instead of trying to standardize these top-down expansive features, instead what you should do is focus on just the small building blocks that let framework and library authors, open source authors, build their own abstractions on top of them. So don't give us the feature. Give us the building blocks that let us build the feature for ourselves. And because the web has such a thriving ecosystem of open source projects and libraries, it can move much, much faster than any standards body can. So jQuery is a good example of this, right? The DOM API, which is what you use to manipulate dynamic web pages, the API for using that, like how programmers take advantage of it, is quite obtuse. It's really unpleasant to use. People generally dislike it. It's confusing. But it had all of the capabilities that you needed to build these dynamic web applications. And that opened the door for libraries like jQuery to come along. And jQuery provides a nice API, but under the hood, it's using those capabilities. And other frameworks like Angular and Ember can come along, and they can kind of paper over bad API decisions so long as the capabilities exist in the browser uh, we can do some pretty cool stuff with it. So that's the other exciting thing is that the standards bodies now are focusing not on building these big bang features, but giving us, in my case as a, as a framework author, these little building blocks that I can use to piece together and build really nice API and really nice experience for end users and, and developers. That makes sense. But can you tell me how the manifesto is actually playing out in practice? Are people following the ideas that are being proposed here? Surprisingly, Yes. And I think a big part of that is there was a period of time where the standards bodies were full of browser vendors and academics. Those were the primary constituents of the standards bodies. And I think that's important. Having academics and certainly having browser vendors there is critically important. But of course, anytime you go to a standards body, you inherently have biases that play out in standards design and in language design and so on. And there was a class of people who were really underrepresented in the standards body. And that class of people, of course, are, are practitioners, people right. who are actually using these technologies. So uh, there was a little bit of a, a revolution recently. So Yehuda Katz and Rick Waldron, both of jQuery and a few others, staged a, a coup of sorts in the W3C 
So the way that, that the W3C works is it's like a bureaucracy, like, a, like any kind, and, and member companies elect people to serve on these boards. And typically these elections are very, you know, no one really pays attention. It's just you vote for whoever, you, the incumbents always win, right? It's like one of these bureaucracies where the incumbents always just get reelected every year. But then I don't know who was the mastermind of this. Yehuda was definitely involved, but Yehuda decided that he was going to shake things up. And so he, at this, you know, at the 11th hour, organized this like coalition of people to run for the W3C tag, which is the technical architecture group. And I couldn't believe it. They actually won. You know, these people who came out of nowhere, they totally disrupted this sitting somewhat calcified bureaucracy. They went around to all these different companies that had voting members in the W3C and they convinced them to vote for them instead of the the sitting bureaucrats. And uh, they won. So we actually filled uh, tag with practitioners, which was really, really incredible. And of course, now jQuery uh, has joined ECMA, which is the standards body in charge of designing JavaScript, the programming language. So we've filled all of these standards bodies, the ones that really matter, with practitioners. We've engaged very heavily with the browser vendors. I know I personally, I just last week was meeting with people from uh, Google and Microsoft to discuss features that we needed for Ember in JavaScript, the programming language. So I'm as shocked as you are, but it seems to be working. That's really incredible. Um, uh, when you described a coup d'etat at first, um, you I'm wouldn't at... think that a, <laughs> that a software standards body would be full of <laughs> politics and drama, but you could make a movie out of it. Yeah, I'm just I'm imagining like a bunch of software developers like seizing a television station and taking over the network. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we probably would have stormed the Bastille if people were in better shape. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does this mean for your developer now that you know the browsers are moving faster and the standards bodies are moving faster? I think for developers, what it means is that more and more you're you're no longer going to be constrained by the capabilities of the platform. A lot of times as a as a web developer, having talked to a lot of designers that want to build really awesome experiences for their customers, they don't always like working with web developers compared to native developers. Because oftentimes they'll have a really great idea for this cool, slick animation UI and they'll go to the web developer and the web developer is like, yeah, are you kidding? <laughs> we, we have to support <laughs> IE7. Not going to happen. But the native developer is like, oh, yeah, awesome. Let's do it. We have this new framework that lets us do it. And so what I think what that means for the average web developer is you're going to have to start getting used to saying yes instead of saying no to a lot of UIs and interaction models that before you might have just, you instinctively learned to say that's impossible to do that in the browser. Now things like WebGL, Canvas, there's a technology out of Mozilla called Asm.js. Asm is a subset of JavaScript that lets you run code in the browser at almost native speed. So it's as fast as a very low-level language like C or C++, for example. So these are these are built in the browser, or are they separate from the browser? No, these are built into the browser. Yeah, okay. built into the browser. And so with tools like that, you really have no excuse anymore. And it also means that you need to start thinking about architecting your application differently to take advantage of this. So for example, you can't have as much behavior running in the server as you could before. Because of course, in the old model, every time you clicked on a link, the browser would throw away everything that it was showing you and go download a completely brand new copy and treat it like a, a totally different page, right? Like you click around a link, it throws it away, goes and gets the new set thing, and then shows it to you. You click another link, throws it away, gets the new one, etc. 
But if you really want to take advantage of these capabilities, you can't actually even use that architecture anymore. A good example of this is a music player, right? Like imagine you were going onto a website to listen to music like RDO or Spotify, and you click you know, a button to start playing a song. It starts playing the song. Now imagine that if you clicked a link to view a different album, all of a sudden your music stopped playing. That would be really annoying, right? It's like what happens today on YouTube. You're watching a video, you click any link, and boom, the video just goes away. But if you have an application where all of the routing is happening in the browser and the browser is never throwing anything away, you can have long-lived things. You can have music playing in the background. You can keep a video playing without interruption. So really, really, if you want to take advantage of all this cool new stuff coming in the browser, you're going to have to start thinking about how to re-architect your application in a way that takes advantage of that. And the only way to do so is to use these client-side JavaScript frameworks that let you build your application architecturally as though it were no different from a mobile phone app or a, a desktop app. Right. You're definitely uh, rocking my world here because, you know, I've built, I think, an entire career around saying no to designers and advocating for significantly poor user experience. So I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think as a web developer, you, you just get in that habit. And, and I, think it's, I think it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So given that you are uh, one of the creators of Ember.js, uh, which is a JavaScript framework and core team member, and you know, I'm kind of starting to tire of jokes about how there are a new JavaScript framework, you know, every like two seconds. Um, there I, really I, are, though. There were like two this week on Akinus. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the two that made it to the front page, you mean. Yeah. All the other that are just sitting there in newest waiting to die uh, <laughs> with like two stars on GitHub. But more seriously, how do you perceive the landscape of these various JavaScript frameworks that are out there today? Well, I think it's it's very exciting. We are in kind of this golden era of web application development, and I personally feel very privileged to even be participating in this. It's you know, in some sense, like a renaissance of the web is happening, and and getting to participate in that is just is really rewarding. Uh, especially now, we live in a world with you know, there's like Hacker News, you can get the message out, but there's GitHub, which makes it very easy to collaborate. Uh, distributing packages, things like NPM and Bower make it really easy to package up your code and share it with people. Uh, we've been working on tools like like Ember CLI that make it really easy to build these applications just you know off the shelf. You get everything you need to build a really great application. So in that sense, like the pace is really unbelievable. And we love it because the whole point of Ember as a framework, the reason it exists is to create kind of a, a sub-community within the larger community of JavaScript developers that says we really value solving things as a community. There's a, kind of a streak of, uh, I'll call it technological libertarianism in the JavaScript community, which is, or what is the term someone used? Someone referred to it as uh, Amish coders. Amish coders, they want to build everything for themselves, right? If they don't, if it's not handmade, they don't churn their own butter at home. It's not going to be good or to fit their needs. <laughs> uh, so there's a big subset of the JavaScript community that are these Amish coders that want to build everything from scratch. They want to, you know, get the lumber and build it themselves. But for us, we think that there is productivity in, as a community, deciding, you know what, we all have this problem. Let's all decide together on a solution that solves it for the majority of us. So DHH, who is a creator of Ruby on Rails, described it in one of his RailsConf keynotes as 
climbing the mountain together. Whether you're a new developer or whether you're a very seasoned developer, there is surprising and maybe counterintuitive advantage to having both new and experienced users solve the same problem in the same way. As a community, there's huge community benefit to that. So we're all about solving things as a community, and we are not above learning from other frameworks. So, for example, uh, we learned from Angular the benefit of reusable components, which they call directives. And for us, that was something that we just didn't have. And they had it for a long time, and it was only after seeing how successful it was for them that we thought, you know what, that's a good idea. And, and so Ember has a, a concept called components now, which let you build these kind of reusable UI widgets. Another example is uh, React. So React is a JavaScript library from Facebook, and they pioneered a, a pretty novel way of rendering UIs on the web. And we uh, just landed in Glimmer a complete rewrite of our rendering layer that was largely inspired by those great ideas that they had. Uh, and I think, likewise, Ember really pioneered client-side routing, I was talking, which we were talking about a little bit earlier, this idea that the web application has all of the, the knowledge that it needs to be able to make decisions about how to map a URL onto a particular screen that the user should be seeing at that moment. Ember's router is, I think, the best in the industry and Angular 2.0, the next version, has a router that actually uses some of our open source libraries, which I think is awesome, this kind of collaboration. And similarly, there's a, a quasi-port of the Ember router to React. So in that sense, I think it's really exciting that all of these libraries and frameworks are experimenting. They're trying out new things to see what works. And because of this spirit of collaboration and open source, any good idea that one of them uncovers, it's not very long before another one gets it as well. Right, absolutely. So to take a second and talk about this, you know, kind of topic of reinventing the wheel here, you certainly don't have to convince me to work here since I'm already a very happy and productive Ember developer. But, you know, there are very intelligent people out there that complain about frameworks like Ember, even Rails, despite the fact that some of us feel like, you know, Rails and the conventions that it's brought about has largely won, that they sacrifice a little too much flexibility and impose constraints on you that are uncomfortable or, you know, they can't get behind. So imagine that I'm not convinced and I'm, you know, one of these critics. How would you convince me to prefer this convention over configuration? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that if you have a style of working that makes you productive and you're shipping great products that your customers love, then I don't really care how you build your software, you know, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, what works for me, you know, and that is I've been there. I've been in these positions where I've used some off the shelf tool that was at peak hype cycle and everyone told me not only is it going to let me build these awesome apps, it's going to Julian my fries and it's going to cradle my baby until it stops crying and puts it to sleep. You know, like it was <laughs> like these promises were so great. And then occasionally I would run into some to some problem and that tool just didn't work for me. And now it was like I felt like I had to learn how this thing worked in the internals and maybe the internals weren't very good. And now it's like you know, it would have been faster for me to just build this thing myself instead of now trying to understand what's going on in this crappy code base. So I can definitely sympathize with that sentiment because I've been there too. And I think the most important thing and probably the biggest error people make when making this argument is they conflate strong conventions with an incomprehensible internals, with incomprehensible internals. So all convention is is saying we're going to have sane defaults, right? We're going to have a set of defaults that work for 80% of developers. 
and we'll make that really nice using syntactic sugar. It'll be very concise, and, and we'll do all the wiring up for you. You won't have to write all this very verbose code to do the common faces. So to me, these are two kind of orthogonal things. And what we try to go for is building internals that are maximally flexible. So a set of composable, flexible internals under the hood that if you need to drop down a layer to do something custom that we hadn't anticipated, that still feels good, even though you might have to write a little bit more code than if you were relying on those conventions. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, Rails kind of did a disservice. I think the, the good of Rails is far, far outweighs the bad, in my opinion. But Rails, I think, did a little bit of a disservice to this idea of convention over configuration, despite pioneering it, because in Rails 1 and in Rails 2, the internals were so gnarly (laughs) that if you did want to try to change how something worked, it was just madness, just madness. right? Right. And so I think Rails 3 and then Rails 4 have been an effort to try to clean up those internals so that they're composable and plug-inable and so on. Godfrey Chan, who is one of the speakers at EmberConf and RailsConf, But at EmberConf, he had a really great talk about how if you're building a production web application, you are going to end up with a framework anyway, right? Eventually, as your app gets more sophisticated, it's going to need to do more and more. You're going to need more capabilities. And those are capabilities that a framework comes with anyway. And if you don't use a framework like Ember or Angular or React and the assorted set of plugins that you would need to build a framework out of React, if you're not using those, then you're going to be writing all of that glue code yourself. And and his point was that a well-architected framework, not all frameworks, but a well-architected framework already has all of that glue there for you. So it's taking these, these primitives, these building blocks, and it's gluing them together for you. So it already has that glue together layer that you can modify and plug in new things all the time. And he actually went on to uh, give some pretty cool examples of how he took Ember, which is a lot of people have this idea that it's this really like monolithic, hard-to-change framework. And he said, let me show you how in very, very little code I was able to radically change the way that it behaves and use it in surprising ways because this ability to change the underlying building blocks is baked in from the beginning. Okay, so so as we spoke about earlier, there's so many frameworks out there and you know, I do have a handful of friends who opted to use Backbone or Angular and built really large apps with them and they're quite disillusioned from it. How do I decide which framework to use? Or should I even be using a framework? Well, so I'm going to be I'm obviously a little bit biased here, but I'll add the the standard disclaimer that if you have a framework that you like and use and you're productive in it, then you know, I don't care I don't care what you use as long as you're building something that you're happy with. And I think no matter what, if you pick any of the popular frameworks or libraries, you're going to be able to build something that customers love, right? Every framework or tool has some app that's been built that's really great. So, it, it's obviously possible. For me, when I'm picking an open source project to use, whether it's a JavaScript framework or anything, the thing that I look for most is whether the interests of the maintainers are aligned with my own, right? So when the people maintaining this framework, when they wake up every day and they go to work and they have to make decisions about things like the future of the framework, are they going to be making decisions that are aligned with what I would want to make? And to me, that and ongoing maintenance and things like that are oftentimes more important than the actual like nitty-gritty details of like what does the API look like and is it the best technology ever. And so that's, I think, for me that describes the open source projects that I like to use and it also describes the kind of governance structure 
I'll say, of how that we set up for Ember, which I think is actually maybe the most important feature of it. Specifically, when Yehuda and I started it, we really, 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 really did not want to be Ember Inc. We didn't want to go raise a bunch of VC money and build a company that just like sold consulting services and had the exclusive you know, trademark and all of these things. DHH, again, the creator of Rails, he wrote a really great blog post called Why There's No Rails Inc. And Yehuda and I basically just agree with every point that he makes in that blog post. So we also didn't want to be working at a big megacorp who would be sponsoring the work because, one, we didn't have it. <laughs> but two, I've been in that environment. I worked on uh, Sprout Core, which is a JavaScript framework, while I was at Apple. And there was this constant political battle to try to prove that you were worth the money. You know, Paying a large team to work on open source is a non-obvious decision for a megacorporation to make. Um, and so you're constantly always having to like look over your shoulder, making sure that you don't have any political enemies that are going to put the axe to your open source project. And also, if you're like full-time working on a framework, it's very easy to kind of slowly over time climb into the ivory tower and not really have a good sense of what it's actually like to use your framework day to day. So uh, when we were getting started with Ember, Yehuda and I made a very conscious decision that we wanted to populate the core team with people from as many different companies as possible. And we felt like if we created a coalition of people that had many, many different interests, then we could rest assured that when we were making decisions as a core team, that we had a good sense that everyone's needs were covered and at least represented in, during the decision making, and we didn't have any major blind spots. So the thing that I'm I think most proud of about Ember is the fact that our core team has people who are like small bootstrappers who work on product, like uh, Yehuda and I work on a product called Skylight. We have companies that are just purely doing consulting, helping other companies use Ember. Uh, we have people from big companies like Steph Penner works at Yahoo. So by having representatives from all those many different types of companies, it makes it likely that we'll at least be able to incorporate the needs of large swaths of the community in our decision making. Right. I mean, for me, I think the decision ultimately was like, come for the core team and stay for the rest of the community. Uh, that, that's been my experience so far. You know? yeah, I think I think we also just, I think we actually do a pretty good job of making sure that we incorporate best practices. So as the community, like the web development community evolves, I, I personally, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I think we actually do a, a phenomenal job incorporating those changes, but not in a backwards incompatible way. So we've never said, okay, you have to go rewrite your Ember app for Ember 2.0, right? Ember 2.0 actually doesn't have any new features. It's just removing old features that are no longer used. And I think that's actually pretty incredible because Ember came out in 2011 and I can't think of any equivalent framework that has advanced and changed as much as Ember has and really brought kind of the best of what the community has to offer, but never at any point said, okay, now you have to go rewrite your apps. Right. I mean, there was a little bit of pain for a period of time there, but I think the adoption, uh, and this is a little inside baseball at this point, but you know the adoption of the Chrome model, and then, in fact, one of the things that I'm most impressed with, so we'll put this in the show notes, but just looking at the way that you visualize you know, very simply what the uh, upgrade path looks like, the amount of communication that you've had with the community. I don't know precisely when those changes happened, but when they did, it was like, Overnight, you know, the sun shone down upon all of us. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was. I think it was largely. It was. It was largely 1.0. Like we had so much churn going up to 1.0, and 
We were making a long-term bet. I, I know Yehuda and myself and, and the rest of the core team are in Ember for the long haul. We want to build a framework that will last you know, a decade, if not more. And it's very easy to make short-term decisions that feel very good in the moment, but you have to have discipline and kind of hold the line and make decisions that are not going to bear fruit for maybe like a year or two. And I, I think a good example of that is, is leading up to 1.0. We actually had a fair number of users prior to our 1.0 release, and we knew that we weren't satisfied with it. We knew it wasn't the framework that we wanted to continue supporting. So we made several, like as you were alluding to, major breaking changes that did require essentially rewrites right, in, in pre-1.0 versions. And that was painful. I got to tell you, like there were a lot of people who were personally pissed off at me about that. And uh, I, I mean, I felt bad, certainly. It wasn't an easy decision to make. But the trade-off and the thing that we said at the time, and people had to believe us or not, but I think we're, I think we're making good on that promise now, is, hey, you know, we're going to make these changes now, but it's going to be a framework that we can maintain for the long haul. And ever since we declared 1.0, we've stuck very strictly to semantic versioning, um, making things compatible, communicating as much as possible, adding tooling. So, for example, in the... Uh, Chrome extension for Ember apps will show you a list of deprecations. These are like, hey, here's features that we're going to remove in like a year. So make sure that you're not using these. And if you are using them at any point within the next few months, just go ahead and refactor them at your leisure. So I think that we made a big bet, which is that we'll piss off a bunch of people prior to our 1.0 release. But after 1.0, we can have a level of stability that's going to be the envy of our competitors. Excellent. Well, I'm personally looking forward to it. Backing up again to, you know, the introduction of JavaScript, allowing all this, you know, rich UI, there are a couple terms that became really popular around 2011, 2012, and are, you know, maybe fading from view right now, but the, the idea of progressive enhancement or unobtrusive JavaScript. And I'd like to define both of these, and we'll certainly have, you know, deeper information about it in the show notes. But do you think that these practices are still realistic today? Should we be attempting to do them? I don't think that they're necessarily realistic. So progressive enhancement is this idea that you can get the best of both worlds, right? Where So we talked earlier in the show about this difference between server-side rendering where you have all the logic and behavior in the server and then single-page apps or client-side apps where all of the logic and behavior is in JavaScript and it's running in the user's browser. And so progressive enhancement says well, let's get the best of both worlds. So for people that don't have good browsers or don't have JavaScript on their phones or whatever, let's still continue having the behavior and the logic on the server. We'll do the initial render. We'll send that to the client. And then on the client, now we'll basically sprinkle some JavaScript on top. And sprinkling that JavaScript on top will make it a little bit better for the people who do have JavaScript. So people who, you know, like, it'd be like making Google Maps work for people who didn't have JavaScript, but if you wanted to move around, you'd have to fall back to the old, like, MapQuest style of clicking. But for people that did have JavaScript, you would be able to click and drag, and it would be very smooth, and you could scroll in and out, and, you know, things like that. And that's a very nice ideal. In theory, that sounds awesome, just like communism and spandex sound awesome in theory. But when, <laughs> but when they hit the real world... You're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. So the problem with progressive enhancement is just what it sounds like. You're now writing the same application twice. The more sophisticated that you want to make your interactivity, the more the two paths start to diverge. So now you're writing one application that runs on the server, and then you're writing another 
ad hoc application that takes the results of that server and adds interactivity to it. And what happens over time, listen, talk to anyone who's worked on a large, complicated, sophisticated, progressive enhanced app. It sucks. The code base is just like spaghetti. It's so tangled up, you know, because you're building it piece by piece and you're taking the results of this thing. You've basically signed up to solve a distributed computing problem. You know, you have logic and state on the server and you have logic and state on the client and you have to synchronize them despite what might be several seconds of latency between the two and intermittent connections. So what do you do then about the uh, segment of your user base that are Hacker News users who proclaim about they turn off JavaScript? So I don't think that there's anything wrong with the goals of progressive enhancement. I think they're very noble goals. But I think that it's just not feasible to ask developers to build two apps and then fuse them together. I think that if you want to support these ideals, or if you want to support users, for example, that don't have JavaScript enabled, I think you have to somehow get the benefits as a byproduct of modern web development. Like just have people do what they're doing now and figure out a way to make it run on the server. So we've been working on this um, a lot. We have a project for Ember called Fastboot. And I think Fastboot is pretty cool. I mean... Oh, it's amazing. I'll just say that my mind was blown okay. when I... Thank you. Yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to toot my own horn and like I don't want to sound... Oh, like... I'll, I'll toot it for you. Just go ahead and tell <laughs> me when and I'll, I'll toot. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know. I'm trying not to like fall into delusions of grandeur and there's a lot we need to do to make it like a mainstream thing, but I no. think it's actually pretty revolutionary. In the it was sense pretty that awesome. It completely changes. Yeah, when, when you announced it, I, I felt like an Oprah Winfrey moment. Like, and you get a fast boot, <laughs> and you get a fast boot, and you get a fast boot. <laughs> Yeah, we were literally trying to tackle that like at the time you announced it. That was awesome. I I think it's pretty mind-blowing. And I think what's especially crazy about this is that Yehuda and I have have had this idea for something like Fastboot since we started the framework back in 2011. And the whole time while we were building Ember and building out features and everything, you know, we we weren't really like working on Ember full-time and there was a lot more stuff to do. There was a lot that needed to be in place and we were like busy starting a company. Um, but we're just like, oh, it'd be so great if we could, if we could just do this feature, it'd be like a real game changer, but we had to build the ecosystem first, but now the ecosystem exists. And anyway, the point I'm making is that we have been designing the framework from day one to support this case. And, and let me tell you why Fastboot is so cool is because instead of saying, okay, developer, you need to write one version of your app for people that don't have JavaScript. And then you need to write more code on top of that, that works for people with JavaScript. Instead of doing that, <laughs> which sounds terrible. Instead, what we do is say, just build an Ember app. Just write an Ember app, and then you'll actually take that Ember app that you've built, and you'll run it on the server. So you'll install some software on your server that makes it kind of like a browser, right? It runs JavaScript on the server, and the exact same JavaScript code that you would normally send to the user, to their browser, instead of sending it to the the browser, you send it first to the server, And so if the user doesn't have JavaScript on their browser, it doesn't matter because they can leverage the JavaScript running on the server, basically. And again, we make it just a byproduct of how you would build a modern JavaScript Ember application. So you don't have to think about it. You just build the app like you normally would, and you get all these really great benefits, like working for people that don't have JavaScript enabled uh, for free, which I think is really great. There, There are certain caveats, of course. There are things that you that you can't do with Fastboot. So for example, like D3 is a library for drawing graphs and charts and things like that. And in order to draw those charts, it requires a browser, like a full-fledged browser. So we don't support that at the moment. We, we could, it's just a little bit slow. 
Um, so that's not turned on by default. But you, you could do it. There's no reason conceptually why you couldn't. So we're pretty excited about it. And I think the most important thing is it features like this really rely on having strong conventions and a community that believes in those strong conventions. Because a lot of people have been doing proofs of concepts before where they're like, oh, check it out. I took these four libraries and I put them together and I have server-side rendering. But you don't really have it unless everyone can use it. And our goal with Fastboot is to package up something that's so easy to use. It's like, why wouldn't you use it? In one of your talks, you explained why the URL is so important for the internet. Can you tell us why the URL matters so much? And what's the state of the URL in the web applications today? Yeah, you know, a lot of people, you know, would talk about why, you know, it's, back in the 90s, it was like, well, the web went out over native. And basically, the answer was no for a long, long time. And everyone's like, no, native apps are still so much better than web apps. But it just ended up not mattering. The web still won. And I believe that the reason that the web won is because of the URL. By having a URL, and remember that the only way that web applications could even exist because browsers were just dumb document viewers, the only way that you could have that browser interact with your server is via URL. By definition, basically every web application that's ever been written had the ability to share what you're looking at built in. You know, if I'm in like Photoshop or Word and I'm editing it like a document, and I want to show you what I'm looking at, I can't do that. I have to like save the file and like email it to you somehow, and then like you make your changes, and then I incorporate it back. That sucks. But with every web application, I'm like, oh, I want to share this with you. I want you to make edits to it. Let me just copy this URL out of the address bar and just paste it into a chat. You click on it, boom, you've got it. It also means that you can do things like command clicking or control on a Mac or control clicking on a PC opens the page in a new tab, right? It's like you're using this application and you're like, oh, I see something that I want to come back to, but let me like fork that off and I'll come back to that in a second. You can't do that with Photoshop. You can't have like two versions of Photoshop running at the same time with like the history saved. The web has all of these like really powerful things like sharing, opening new tabs, bookmarking, and also most importantly, if I have a web application, I want to link to deeply into your web application, I can do all of that, and it all shakes out from the URL. And it's actually something that native developers have been struggling with for a very long time. Uh, there have been multiple efforts, like Facebook has an effort to try to add linking to native applications. So if you're in one Facebook app, you can link to another Facebook app and not just go to the home screen, but like go deep into it, to a particular page that you want to show. So that's why I think the web is going to win on mobile, too. The capabilities of the platform are rapidly catching up, and native just has no equivalent of the URL, whereas every web application built, minus some really busted JavaScript, there was like a period of time between like 2010 and like 2013 where people were writing JavaScript apps with totally busted URLs, but they felt broken. There was a period of time where the general consensus was that these JavaScript-heavy apps felt broken, they felt really bad, and you shouldn't write them because they broke scrolling, they broke the back button, they broke all these things. People noticed, even if they couldn't articulate it, that when the URL didn't work in a web application, it just felt broken. And I think a lot of people, if you were to ask them, you know, like, hey, are you a web developer? Yes, I'm a web developer. Okay, what does it mean to be a web developer? They'll say, oh, well, I write HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But to me, that is kind of an implementation detail. It doesn't really matter what technologies, those are technologies that you use on the web. But to me, the core aspect of being a web developer means that you build applications that have URLs. You build applications that are shareable, that are bookmarkable, that you can open in a new tab. 
to me, that's that kind of virality. You just know as a user of the web, whatever I'm looking at, if I want to share that with someone, I can just go to the address bar, copy it and send it to them and they can see it. That is such a hugely powerful thing that is immensely undervalued, especially by people who are trying to compare native and the web. Yeah, I mean, you know, just as an example, so we drafted some questions uh, yesterday that we went ahead and sent to you. And I mean, it was literally as simple as like, here's a Google Docs link, copy, paste, put it in an email. Now you have it, you can look at it, you can prepare for the interview. But, you know, imagine even just something as simple as like a photo in an iPhone app, right? You know, yep. what What are the steps that I have to go through to even like somebody standing next to me to say, hey, go look at this photo. You know, I've got to like, try and figure out where the share button is and then you know like maybe airdrop will work this time right like uh messages uh what's what's your last name again um uh you know like it's it's such a painful thing but we all take it for granted the way that you know links and urls on the web work yeah it's crazy how something so simple has taken us so far so i'd like to understand then what the state of the url is then in these web applications right now? Does everything support it? I mean, and how complex does a URL actually get? I think the good news now is if you're picking any modern, popular JavaScript library or framework, there's some story for routing. I'll take a little bit credit here. Ember really, really pioneered this idea that JavaScript apps needed to have a router. Uh, And it was actually very controversial at the time, surprisingly. But the good news is now it's table stakes for round is this round three or round four of the javascript framework wars (laughs) uh, sorry to interrupt you but what precisely do you mean by routing and a router when i say routing i just mean the idea that when the user types in a, a url you know that can be somewhat long some piece of code needs to say you know i see that you're going to the url slash post slash one two three slash comment slash four five six and that means, you know, go get the comment for this post identified by these IDs. And so that some piece of code needs to decide that that URL maps to this template or this model data in the database. So that code just needs to live somewhere. And so when I say a router, that's just a piece of code that in whatever framework you're using, that maps the URL onto the actual UI components and the underlying data that the user's seeing. Okay, excellent. That makes sense. So... Uh, so it's it's basically table stakes at this point, and mo- so many web applications today that I use are JavaScript. They just are so much JavaScript on a day to day basis. You you can't really disable JavaScript in your browser and have a usable experience on the web today. But I have noticed that as an industry, we've figured out how to build JavaScript applications that work well with the back button. You can command click links now. You can bookmark JavaScript web applications. And I think, to be honest, you know, I, I don't want to be um, arrogant, but I think in a lot, in a large way, we really helped shape that idea because JavaScript apps just felt totally busted. Um, and uh, some of the best ideas from the the Ember router have been adopted in a very widespread way. So I, I'm I'm happy to report that I think as a as an industry, we figured out how to build JavaScript web applications that feel like good citizens of the web, and we can start we can thankfully start moving on uh, and, and tackling some new problems. Yeah, that's great. So I'd like to know before you go, what you find most exciting for Ember's future? Yeah, what, um, do you, what do you see coming up in the next six months, year that you're really excited about for Ember? I mean, you know, I, I know obviously 2.0 is dropping soon and we're all kind of excited for that. But, 
you know, it was interesting even just reading the post recently. Um, I, I forget how long ago it was, but saying, you know, even though we've been building up for this milestone, hey, we've still got the same release cycle that we always yeah. have. So, I mean, do you feel like there are big milestones at this point or is it just like, you know, continual march to progress? I would say, you know, it's hard for me to answer because the community has gotten so big and so many large companies are adopting it and deploying it out to production that it's at the point where I can't even keep track anymore. You know, every time I open the Ember Weekly newsletter, I'm just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know about that. You know, there's all these new projects that I'm learning about because the community is is so vibrant. And, and in some sense, I kind of hope that the locus of innovation shifts away from the core. Uh, we want to build a really extensible, pluginizable core that's pretty stable. And there was a lot of pressure previously to build things into core because sharing code was so hard in the JavaScript ecosystem. But with Ember CLI and Ember CLI add-ons, it's really, really, really easy to add new features to the framework that don't have to be maintained by the core team. Right. Um, I, I think it's actually, um, that speaks volumes about Ember's ecosystem that, you know, I didn't even consider that, like, here you are, Tom Dale, co-creator of Ember, sitting there, like, opening up Ember Weekly and being like, oh, wow, I had no idea that that yeah, was a thing. <laughs> it's, it's so rewarding to see how vibrant the ecosystem has become. And I think that kind of decentralization is, is really critical to keeping the pace of innovation going. Uh, that being said, there are a few things that members of the core team are thinking about um, that I think are of this, the class of problem that really do deserve to be in core, so CSS is is probably the biggest one. We've been working closely with our friends at the browser vendors and on the standards bodies. Uh, CSS is kind of a nightmare right now. I would say it's kind of the last frontier uh, colonization that needs to happen by the open source community. Um, and, and largely it's because CSS is kind of a black box that you don't have access to from JavaScript. Not really. You know, the CSS engine is a black box that exists in the browser, but in terms of modifying how it behaves, you know, you can set styles, but you can't really modify things or add new rules or add new, you know, things like this. So our goal is to basically tame CSS, which is very global. You know, you can add a rule and it can affect every page, every component on your page. Um, we want to tame that and bring the same reusability and understandability that Ember components bring to UI widgets, we want to bring that same understandability and isolation to CSS. So that's a big one that I'm excited about. Another thing that I'm really excited about is, forgive me for using the S word, but there's some synergy between <laughs> uh, Ember and, and Ember Data, which is the, the library that we wrote to deal with persistence, like getting data out of your database on the server and into the user's browser. And because we can kind of think of this from a very full stack point of view, um, from data persistence loading it off the server all the way up to the UI layer, I'm actually really excited about the possibility that maybe we can make it so that when you build an Ember app out of the box, um, it supports offline automatically. You know, if, if you think about, here's an example, like Twitter on your mobile phone. You know, if you open Twitter, you don't sit there and see a loading spinner what you see is the last tweets that it fetched. And then if any new ones come in, it kind of puts them on top, right? So the Twitter app has all of that data locally. 
And the only time it goes to talk to the server is to get new stuff and save it. And so what that means is that you can read old tweets even if you don't have an internet connection. Well, what if we could make it so that when you built an Ember app, you got similar behavior for free? So if you, for example, were to like build an email client in Ember, it would just cache all of your emails that you were viewing, and then if you were offline, it would not not work. You would only see the data that you had previously fetched. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I think that's kind of a similar level of kind of you know game changer where if you can make it so easy that people have no excuse not to do it, that has such an impact on the industry. Right. It's funny when you talk about the user experience, it's kind of like the conversation that we had before about the ludicrous idea of like clicking a button and expecting, yeah. you know, it to go to a server in Virginia and come back again. You know, it's a, it sounds so silly, um, especially to people who, you know, are less technical even to yeah. think like, how is this not even possible right now? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. I can't like look at my tasks in Asana. It's, it's like, being... wait, you were, you were showing me that page literally a half second ago, but when I hit my back button, you just like completely forgot it. Surely computers have the ability to remember things for more than two seconds. <laughs> right, exactly. Like I have photos that have been on here for years. Like why can't you remember this like task list that I had yeah. open? And that happens to me all the time. Like I fly a lot for business and if I'm on an airplane that has Wi-Fi, usually the in-flight Wi-Fi is pretty poor. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is to like be looking at something, click a link, and it doesn't work, so it's like, oh, I can't load this page. And I hit the back button, and the thing I was looking at two seconds ago was gone. Right. Ah, oh, why are computers so bad? But we can fix them. That's the good news. They're fixable. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that we have people like you and others in the Ember community especially uh, doing this. So thank you again for taking the time out to come on and speak with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. And if you can tell our audience, where can we keep up with you online? You can keep up with me on uh, Twitter is probably the best place, although I'm taking a break. It's so stressful on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but you can you can follow me at uh, Tom Dale on Twitter. Okay. Or you can read uh, my inflammatory blog posts on TomDale.net. Oh, excellent. I love those. Those are the best. Blog <laughs> posts. All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.